Our reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 34, verses 4 through 7. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, Father, I cherish that your body is gathered together to praise your name this morning. For you are supplying our souls with an abundance of testimonies, declaring that you have the power to save us from fear, from anxiety, from doubt, even from isolation. And so God, give us perspective to see and believe that you are surrounding us with grace and mercy this morning. So fashion our hearts through the preaching of your word. Will you equip Pastor Jeff as we open up 1 Samuel and learn about the king who set the stage for your son? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Good morning. Well, I'm back for a little while. (laughs) It's great to be back with you. For those of you who don't know who I am, I am Jeff Kennedy, the senior pastor of the church, and I've been on sabbatical, some vacation time this summer, and I have been really, really looking forward to getting back at work, uh, getting back to work and uh, seeing your, your faces and meeting some of you who are new. Uh, For sure. Uh, We are starting a new series. For those of you who don't know, we've been in the series of Judges and Ruth, which is kind of the same era in uh, the Jewish history. And now we're entering 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so what is the experience like to go from reading Judges to 1st and 2nd Samuel? Well, a little analogy might help. And I would start with 1950s America. The 1950s brought significant change and progress from the eras, the previous eras of the Great Depression and World War II. The GI Bill facilitated education and home ownership for returning veterans, fueling economic growth and middle class expansion, and it was actually the creation of the middle class. This period was marked by prosperity, the baby boom. For those of you who are boomers, welcome. (laughs) The invention of consumerism and new conveniences, medical advancements, suburbanization, a vision for future space exploration, and civil rights progress, the hope that soon women and minorities would be able to vote. However, life in 1950s America shared certain similarities with previous decades. Gender roles and social norms, notably voting rights for women and minorities, stayed the same. Racial tensions persisted with segregation and Jim Crow laws in the South. Television, which was a new invention, for those of you who were raised on the 1950s television shows, it was a new invention. It transformed the way Americans experienced leisure. But other technological advancements like phones and radios and appliances had already existed for decades, and rural areas still continued to lack access to them. Family dynamics shifted subtly to suburbanization, but the core tenets of the nuclear family remain largely the same. And so despite its continuity with previous decades, after the Great Depression and after World War II, this era is often spoken of by historians, and some of you actually lived through it, as a general decade of optimism. Something was in the air. Something was new now. And similarly, in this new series on the life of David, which we are calling Shepherd, Poet, Fugitive, King, 
because all of those words represent certain stages in David's life. And it will feel at times as though we are still reading Judges, sometimes. Once again, we'll see men abusing women or taking advantage of them, wives betrayed by husbands and wayward children gone off the rails, corrupt religion, conspiracies to commit murder, dysfunctional families, deceitful politicians, power struggles, and the horrors of war. But there's something different now. Something's in the air, and we can't help but notice it. It seems like the world has new promise. Amidst Israel's darkness, there is renewed optimism that the people of God will finally be united under one God as one people with one king. And it all starts with the story of Ruth, which we finished last week, Thank you, Pastor Daniel. You did a fantastic job. If you missed that message, go back and listen to it. But also the story of Hannah, which will be in the next two weeks. Let's pick up our scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, There was a man from Ramathaim, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The first was Hannah. And the second, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to each of her sons and daughters, so she had lots of children. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. And her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, or the Lord's house at Shiloh, her rival taunted her in this way. Or another version says, her rival provoked her in this way. And Hannah would weep, and she would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? What's the problem? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Man, when you just don't know what to say, say the wrong thing for sure. And so we're going to see three things in this story today, three things. Hannah's desperation, she was desperate. Hannah's devotion and Hannah's determination. Number one, Hannah was a desperate woman. She was desperate, despairing even. What were the causes of her despair? Well, first of all, she was barren and unable to have children. The text makes a point of telling us that she was barren and unable to have children. Well, why is this a problem? Because this is a patrilineal world. What does that mean? In a patrilineal society, women and children or, or female children cannot inherit a father's property. Now, we already know that Elkanah is a man of standing. You can't have two wives unless you have money, unless you have resources in this world. And so he has property. He has an estate to pass on. But you can't pass on your property to your property. And women and children were considered property, so he needs sons, right? And barrenness in this world was stigmatized. It was a stigma for a woman not to be able to have children, and so this is why her um, live-in rival torments her so. And Hannah has a natural desire for children. 
she has reached an age, don't know exactly what age, but right around the age of 30, uh, biologists tell us, doctors tell us, that there is a metabolic urge for a woman to have a baby. And the closer you get to it, the more your genetics just kick in and you feel it. And so she has reached a point where she must have children. It is the desire of her heart. And so she is despairing over this because she can't. But Hannah has more problems. She lived with a, within a polygamous marriage. In the ancient world, polygamy was tolerated. Polygamy is just one man or person being married to multiple people, two or more, right? This was tolerated. It was tolerated in Judaism, and it was tolerated in the uh, Gentile pagan religions, but it was highly regulated. And this is why we know Elkanah must be a man of standing because you can't take on a second wife in this world unless you have the means to provide for her. Now, why anyone in this world would want a second wife? I have enough trouble with one. But this was just a different world. He has to have children. Now, it's probably true that he took on Penina as the second wife because H Hannah wasn't having children. And so he took Penina in so that he could have sons and pass his, uh, his estate onto his progeny. Notice Elkanah's response. He says, I should be enough for you. And Jesus, in a discussion with the, established, uh, with the uh, Sadducees, this is what he established. He laid down this rule. Listen, we're going to go back to Genesis. And in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve. That's a picture. That's the gold standard for human relationships. So it's one man, one woman for life. So every time you see polygamy in the Old Testament, understand it's an aberration of the norm. And if you read those stories carefully, you'll see that it caused all kinds of problems, all kinds of issues. But as a result of this polygamous relationship, she was tormented by her domestic rival. Now, these relationships often just sort of descended into competitive environments where individual wives are vying for the affection and the attention and the resources of the one man. Hannah is being taunted and provoked mercilessly by Penina, who is really rubbing it in her face that she's been able to have kids and Hannah has not. And so I think the application that we draw from this story is pretty clear. Listen, the catalyst for our growth is frequently found in the source or the origins of our discomfort. The catalyst for our growth is frequently found in the source or the origins of our discomfort. The things that make us uncomfortable or sometimes painful, bring painful circumstances into our lives, are often the things that God uses in our life to push us to growth. And Hannah is experiencing heartache, which leads to her despair. She is desperate to make this pain stop, but the provocation is the means by which God is going to take her to the next level in her intimacy and her faith with the Lord. And let me ask you a question. You, what's provoking you right now? What's the burr in your saddle? Have you stopped to consider that the very thing that is vexing you the very thing that God has allowed to come into your life that's causing you this discomfort, this dis-ease, this very thing is what God is using to spur you on toward growth, to spur you on toward a greater intimacy and a greater walk with Him. The very source of your provocation can be God's stimulus for growth and maturity and an intensity in your devotion to Jesus. That just is true. I don't know why God works that way. Listen, I'm just the messenger. Don't get mad at me. 
I'm just the FedEx guy. I'm delivering the package. The second thing we note from the story is that, number two, Hannah was devout. This is her response. Now, her response is all important because she has two ways she could respond, and she chooses devotion to the Lord. She chooses the path of prayer. So, let's pick up the story in verse 10. On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. Now, they are celebrating what is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, this is not a time for fasting. This is a time for feasting. This is a time when the Jews come together, and it's a raucous celebration, and they camp out in their lean-tos uh, at this holy site. Right now, it's not Jerusalem. It's Shiloh. And so they build these little makeshift lean-tos. They live in them. They light fires all over town, and they sing songs well into the night until the last person falls asleep at midnight. And so she's supposed to be celebrating. She's supposed to be feasting, but she's not. And so the priest Eli, it says, was sitting on a chair by the doorposts of the Lord's temple. Now, by this time, the tabernacle, that mobile tabernacle that you read about in uh, Exodus, has now been located at Shiloh, and they've built some walls and some stuff around it, right? So that it has a gate and door and all the rest. And so verse 10 says, Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears, making a vow. She pleaded, Lord of armies, if you, if you take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and, and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. That's a Nazarite vow. And while she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying to herself. She was praying silently. And though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. So Eli thought she was bombed. He thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine, you stupid lady. No, my Lord, she said. Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine, no beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. And Eli responded, well, go in peace then. And may, may the God of Israel grant the request that you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way, and she ate, and what? Was no longer despondent. Everyone in the story has pierced Hannah's heart with their words, some unintentionally, but some intentionally. Elkanah essentially tells her, listen, I should be enough for you. Get over it. Super sensitive there. Penina intentionally torments and provokes her by rubbing her good fortune and blessing in Hannah's face. Eli, the priest, assumes that she's getting sloshed, she's hammered, she's half-lit, and accuses her of drunkenness and chastises her for her excess. But Hannah has every reason in this story to become angry and bitter and to turn away from God. She has every reason. No one understands her pain. No one around her understands the, the torment, the heartache that she is going through. But she doesn't. Instead, she turns to the Lord. She seeks God's presence. She went to the house of the Lord, which is Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle is. She did the only thing she knew to, knew to do. She's in a Torah-observant family, and they are obeying Moses' law and Moses' commands to go down there and have these three festivals at Shiloh, and to celebrate to the Lord. And the text reveals that they are all religiously devout. 
and compliant. They go where the ark is. They attend the feast prescribed by Moses. But there's an added dimension to her faith. The text says, notice what the text says. In the middle of the religious observance, Hannah got up. She got up. She said to herself, I need more than the art of religion. I need more than this ritual or this tradition can bring me. Now, ritual, tradition, public worship, when we come together and we sing all the same songs and we listen to the same message and we pray the same prayers is wonderful. But there are times in your heart where you know you got to get up and you got to come down. And instead of going that way, you know today you got to come this way and allow our elders and our leaders and our prayer team members to pray you through a difficult, hard situation. Sometimes you just got to go the extra mile. You just got to get up and find a space with God, and that is what she does. She carves out space and time for the Lord to pray, and she prays bold prayers. She addresses God, notice this, as the Lord of armies. That phrase in Hebrew is Yahweh Sebaot. Yahweh Sebaot, it's the first time it appears in the entire Old Testament. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Now, she could have addressed him as El Shaddai, God Almighty. She could have addressed him by any other Hebrew name. But she knows what? That she is in a battle. She is in a fight. And when you're in a fight, you don't just need the God who can supply you. You need the God who goes to war for you. You need the God who goes to battle for you. You need the God who is in your corner, and you know that he's fighting your fight for you in the unseen realm. And right now, she is in a fight. And so she prays fervently from the depths of her heart. A few times I can say in my own life that I prayed this way. I mean, I could point to times, I have the journals, I, I recorded it as well as I know how, uh, where I've just been so desperate for, for the, before the Lord that I cried out to Him and words will, just will not do. Have you ever been there? I, I hope you don't have to be, but you will. At some point in your life, you are going to need to pour out your heartache to the Lord and your desire to the Lord. And sometimes the only words that you can come up with are your tears. And that is what she is doing. She is praying bold and fervent and heartfelt prayers to the Lord. And she is mouthing the words from the heart. No sounds are coming out. I'm here, she says. I'm here pouring out the contents of my heart. And to Eli's credit, he changes his attitude. He says, oh, I'm sorry, bless you. The Lord bless you. Be warm, be filled. So what is our application from this today? I think the key to understanding or addressing our discouragement lies in personal, public, passionate, and persistent prayers. Personal, public, passionate, and persistent prayers. Why have I chosen these words? Because that's exactly what we're seeing here. She discovers that the key to her encouragement and addressing her discouragement, and the lifting of her countenance is prayer. She receives consolation even before God renders a verdict, even before God answers her prayer, yes, no, or maybe, or not yet. She receives this consolation in prayer from the Lord. Her heart is lifted. Her countenance is lifted. Listen, before God answers your prayer, prayer is the answer. Prayer is the answer to addressing your discomfort. Prayer is the answer to addressing your, your heart, which has become forlorn and dejected. And I admit, I, I am so prone personally <laughs> to, 
I mean, the way that I'm wired, I just think, look, I'm going to be miserable until, until the answer comes, right? Like, I, I will tell you this. I, I was working really hard this weekend uh, on my garage and my yard, and, and I lost my car keys. It's an old car. It's a 1997 Cadillac Eldorado. It's a beautiful old car, but it's the only set of keys I had. Now I have no keys to the car. I can't start it. I can't move it into the garage. Let me tell you, after I lost those keys, it is all I could think about. I couldn't think about my kids, my family, my wife. I couldn't think about anything else. And several times, my kids and my wife tried to break into my little thought loop. They couldn't break me out of it. It's all I could thought about. I tore up the whole house looking for those keys, and I couldn't find them. And I went to bed last night praying, Lord, in the morning, I just pray that I'm going to find those keys. And I had a fitful sleep all night, and I dreamed these weird apocalyptic dreams about these keys attacking me and stuff, you know? Like, that's all I could think about. I was so obsessed with it, <laughs> right? And so I got up this morning, and I was still down. I was still dejected because I couldn't find those keys. And that's how I'm wired. I'm wired to think, man, if God doesn't answer my prayer in the affirmative, like if God doesn't say yes, I'm just down. And what God wants to tell me is, listen, prayer is the answer to your discomfort. When you don't know why, come to me. When you don't have the answers, come and seek the face of the Lord. Carve some time out to pour out your heart to the Lord. Jesus taught the disciples exactly this in a parable. He taught them that they ought always to pray and never give up. Be persistent. Be personal. Pour out your prayers. And she is literally there, Hannah is literally there, practicing formal religion, the festivals. But she gets up and senses her need to go beyond that. And yet she has chosen to pray these intensely personal prayers, and she prays them right there in public, where she can be ridiculed and mocked and misunderstood. Sometimes you can't just leave it in your prayer closet. Sometimes you got to bring that prayer to church. Sometimes you have to find someone else who can help you pray through. And so it's the kind of prayer we see in Luke twenty-two forty-four. As the hours passed in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed more fervently as great drops of blood fell from his brow. I promise you, he wasn't praying some stilted, scripted prayer. <laughs> he was praying from the heart, Father, if it's your will, take this from me. Take this cup from me. In Romans 12, verse 11, Paul tells the Romans to never be lacking in, in zeal, but to be fervent in spirit as you serve the Lord. How can we never be lacking in zeal? Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. James 5, 16 says this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I just think the King James Version says that best. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So what does this mean? This means we pray for our kids and our grandkids, and we don't give up. We pray for God's will in our lives, and we keep on praying. We pray for relief for the heart, both personally and publicly, being fervent in spirit to seek the Lord. Before God answers any of her prayers, she takes joy and she takes consolation in the presence of the Lord at Shiloh through prayer. How about you? Number three, we see Hannah's determination. I love this part of her character. Hannah's determination to follow through on her vow, to fulfill it. Well, the rest of the story is Hannah does conceive a son, and his name is Shmuel, Shmuel. And that is a combination of two he uh, words in Hebrew. One is shma, which means hear. 
right? Remember the Shema of Israel? That's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 10. Shema of Israel just means hear, O Israel, hear. And El, which is the word for God. And so what does she name this little boy? God hears. This little boy is the manifestation. He is the evidence that God hears your prayers. We pick the, the story up in verse 20. It says, after some time, Hannah conceived and, and gave birth to a son, and she named him Shmuel, because she said, I requested him from the Lord, and he's the answer. God hears. And when Elkanah and his whole household uh, went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, uh, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence, and, to, and he will stay there permanently. Surprise. Her husband Elkanah replied, well, do what you think is best and, and stay here until you've weaned him. And may the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now that, in the ancient world, they, they did that until about the ages of two or three. We don't really do that today, but they weaned their children uh, until about the ages of two or three. So when he is dropped off at the temple, he's kind of a toddler. He really is sort of that age, tumbling toddler, right? And when she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, this holy place, as well as three, a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a clay jar of wine. Uh, though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh, and then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli, and, and she cried out, please, my Lord. And she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood there beside you praying to the Lord, and I prayed for this boy and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And then he worshiped the Lord there. What is Eli's response? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you for this gift of this child. And so she is resolved to follow through on her commitments to the Lord. She doesn't have to pray about it. She doesn't have to think about it again. She doesn't rationalize. She doesn't say, well, maybe this little boy, maybe that was a rash commitment, and maybe this little boy really will need his mommy. Nope, she doesn't do that. And I am struck by Hannah's unblinking, unflinching follow-through. And so what's our application today in the Christian life? Well, faithfulness is the art of transforming our good intentions into steadfast actions. Faithfulness is the art, the skill set of transforming our intentions into steadfast actions. That's what faithfulness is. Now, we all want to be judged as faithful in the end, don't we? Don't we? When we leave a job or at the end of our marriage, when one of our spouses, one of us dies, right? We want to go on to be with the Lord. And in Matthew 25, Jesus said, we're only going to hear one of two things. We're going to hear, good job, faithful servant. I trusted you with little, and now I'm entrusting you with more. Or you're going to hear, you wicked, lazy servant, cast him into outer darkness. Those are the two things we are going to hear. And the distance between our intentions, our good intentions, and hearing that declaration of good and faithful servant is closed by steadfast action. Amen? That's how it's closed. She is faithful. She fulfills her vow. And she does it in a way that is unflinching. It's reflexive. She doesn't have to pray about it, think about it, or rationalize herself out of her commitment. Did you know the children of Israel began their journey in the desert with a commitment? They began their journey with Moses with a commitment. Moses had gone up to Sinai, and they saw the rumbling, and they saw the lightning, and the, 
and the clouds, and Moses came back down, and, and before he really had anything to say to them, this is what they said to Moses, Exodus 19.8. Then all the people responded together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. And then they got the Decalogue in Exodus 20. And then what's the rest of the story? They didn't do anything the Lord said do. They didn't follow through on it. Quite the opposite. They reverted to Egyptian longings and desires for idols and food and accoutrements. They became obstinate, faithless idolaters who died in the wilderness and never saw the promise. God never delivered them to the promised land. Why? Because they were unfaithful. And reflecting on this example in 1 Corinthians 10.5, this is what Paul says. Paul says this, they failed and they died in the wilderness because they did not do what the Lord had commanded them. They did not follow through on the promises that they made to the Lord. Jesus' disciples, at least on two occasions, probably three, if you count the 12 when he was crucified, at least on two occasions, masses of disciples left Jesus. And the most dramatic encounter is John chapter 6, starting with verse 59. And in that encounter, Jesus has just filled their bellies like the manna from heaven, man, just fish and bread. And now throngs of people are following him, and they're thinking, oh, this guy's going to give us free bread. We don't even have to go to work anymore. And so Jesus, seeing that, rebuked them all. And this is what he said. He said, you came after me. You came seeking me because you got your bellies full of fish and bread. So let me tell you this. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot commune with me. You have no part of me. And the people went, what? What? That's crazy talk. What kind of teacher says a thing like that? Jesus intentionally turned most of his disciples away because he was trying to teach them that their communion with him through his broken body and his shed blood was going to be infinitely more important than any bread and fish. And they didn't follow through on their initial commitment to follow Jesus. And what about you? What about us? You said you believed in Jesus. So trust his word. Do you trust his word? Trust it. You said you would follow Jesus' teachings. Okay, so pattern your life after his teachings. You said you would love and worship God above all else and put him first. So love him and smash your idols. You see, in the theater of faithfulness, good intentions may set the stage, but follow-through steals the show. And Hannah, like her ancestor Abraham, is a shining example of this unflinching, unblinking faithfulness to what she has promised. What have you promised the Lord? What have you committed to Him? So let's put it all together. The stimulus for our growth is frequently found in the very things that provoke us the very things that, that are causing us discomfort. What's aggravating you today? And how might God be working through that to grow you into maturity, to grow you into a person who has a more intense devotion and love and, and dependence on Jesus? And contrary to our instinct to avoid discomfort, we do not primarily find relief and consolation in the answers of our prayers. Let me tell you, if I find those keys today, it's going to be another worship service. Like Hannah in chapter 2, I'm going to create a song. I'm going to be so glad because I don't want to. Listen, if I have to pay a dealership to remake those keys for that 1997 Cadillac, it will total the car. 
But until God answers my prayer, prayer's the answer. I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to give it over to the Lord and stop complaining. So what discomfort are you facing today that requires you to get up? To do more than just come here and sit on the perimeter and sing the songs and walk out the door and go eat lunch. What, what requires you to get on your knees or to find some consolation from our leaders today? And let's remember that the distance between our intentions and being declared faithful, that distance is closed by follow-through. Sustained effort to keep moving forward. How are we moving in the direction of steadfast action, steadfast commitment to the Lord? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do thank you for this text. Uh, we thank you because it inspires us. We are inspired by Hannah. <laughs> we're inspired by her devotion. And God, we're encouraged by her faith. And we're moved to action by her example. And we, so, so we just thank you for this story and for these timeless tr truths and principles. And Lord, we we would confess all that is in our heart today as well. And Lord, we, did, we didn't come with a script. We didn't come with a pre-written prayer. We just want to say it from the heart. And God, we need you. We need you more than we need anything else. We need your comforting presence. And Lord, we do ask for answers to our prayers. Lord, we ask that you would heal our bodies. God, we ask that you would provide jobs. We ask that you would provide for the salvation of our children and our grandchildren. And we, we ask that you would say yes to all of those things. But until you do, God, we rely on you. We cast ourselves on you because we know that you care for us. And Lord, we commit ourselves, we recommit ourselves this morning to steadfast action, steadfast commitment. We're not wavering. We're not going to move. Yes, we're going to fail. Yes, we're going to fall. There are times we're going to be tempted. But, Lord, we're not moving. Lord, we're not going anywhere. We're staying right here. We're going to be faithful to Jesus' teachings. We're going to be faithful to your word and faithfully seek you, who is the God of the universe, the God who is able to do more than we could possibly think or even imagine or ask. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.